In your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 6. Continue on in the Sermon on the Mount this week in Matthew chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 11 to 15, but we'll begin reading in verse 5. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5. This is God's Word. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive. Forgive your trespasses. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for his word. Okay, so it's the first time it's not in the bulletin, but we know this by now, right? This is God's word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for if it wasn't you giving us your word, how would we know? Oral traditions fail. Our minds imagine things that are perverse. We would come up with all kinds of ways to distort truth. But you have revealed yourself most clearly in your son, the word made flesh. And you have given us your word in writing that we may look and see and know who Christ is. Seeing our fallenness and sin, our need for a savior and your plan of redemption in the son. And so we thank you for your good word for us and to us. And we pray that as you have promised, it will not return vain this morning. Make it effective in our hearts and our lives. Help us to see. Open our eyes, Lord. We are a blind people. We don't see clearly. We all have blind spots, Lord. Help us to see. Lord, make our hearts tender that we might respond to your word, that we would not again treat this as just something else to endure before lunch. But Lord, would you work and move and have your way in our hearts today. For your sake and for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, for those who have not been with us, we've been in the Lord's Prayer as we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And we looked at the first part last week, so that's where we're continuing from This week, we're in the second part of the Lord's Prayer. Let me mention a few things as a reminder for us to keep in mind as we look at the second part of the prayer today. First, the prayer is a model. Although we can and do repeat it word for word at times, it is given to us to teach us how to pray. That's why Jesus said, pray then like this. It was a model given for instruction that we would know how to pray. The instruction that Jesus is giving here in this part of the Sermon on the Mount is on hypocrisy. Let's not forget that. Sometimes 
We, we know a passage so well, like the Lord's Prayer, that we forget the context that it's given in. Jesus is dealing with hypocrisy, so may we be on guard against double-minded prayers. Third, prayer is always God-oriented. We must be mindful of who we are praying to, the holy God who is high and lofty in heaven. And yet we are instructed as we see today to pray for our physical earthly needs as well because he cares. He is also our father who is near and full of mercy. The other thing I think that is helpful that I haven't said, and this is not so much a reminder, but I think it's helpful for us to keep in mind as we, we go through this part of the, uh, the Lord's prayers, is how we pray for ourselves. In my studies over the past few weeks, I've read, it's, it's not just been my observation, although it has been my observation in my years of ministry, uh, that people tend to either think that it's selfish to pray for themselves, and so they don't pray for themselves very much. They always pray for others. Or they swing to the other side, and their prayers are occupied by their, their own selves. That's, it's all they pray for is what they can get. And that's usually what it is. It's about possessions, or it's about convenience, or ease, or stuff, or happiness. Things that we can certainly pray for, but, sir, but I think we would all agree they're, in the big picture, trivial matters. Things that, uh, that aren't eternal in terms of their value. Are we not praying for grace and mercy and conviction of sin and humility and love for others? The other side of the coin are those who don't pray for themselves. They always pray for others. And it sounds noble at first. They pray for others to come to faith, to grow in Christ's likeness. Pray that others would serve the Lord. Pray that others would bow the knee, repent of sin, humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. All good things, but rarely pray these same things for themselves, for their own hearts personally. So let me say at the outset, while it is possible for our prayer lives to become self-centered and selfish and all about us and, and become consumed with our own little worlds, we certainly want to avoid that. May we not swing to the other extreme where we don't see our own need for mercy and for help in time of trouble, our own need for repentant hearts and humility, our own need to grow in grace. Finally, let us remember what Jesus taught us to pray in the first section, the first is that we are to revere and love God. Hallowed be your name. For his reign to be acknowledged by all your kingdom come, and for his ways to be obeyed in all of our lives, your will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. And to that end, if we are to see the answer to that prayer, we have to be alive and have the physical strength to do that, don't we? And so our physical needs matter to God. Our physical needs, uh, these first three actually depend upon our physical needs being met. And so here we see in this petition, the first petition of the second section, the fourth that we see is give us this day our daily bread. Now some have throughout church history, especially early in the early church, there were those who believed that this just, there was no way this really meant bread, that this meant the, the, the bread of the word or, you know, the bread of life, give us more of Christ. It had to be spiritualized. It couldn't just mean physical food. And I think those intentions may be good, and we certainly do pray for the bread of the word to feed our souls. Yet the meaning of this is just what it says. Give us this day our daily bread. And I think it can be broadened, as we'll see, because of the meaning and the implication of what bread meant, if we can say that, uh, in this time in which Jesus preached the sermon, that bread can represent more broadly all of our physical needs, food, water, shelter, clothing, etc. 
See, in our time, bread isn't seen as essential. Many of us don't eat bread at all because of the carbohydrates and the calories. Or we may have a gluten intolerance or a gluten sensitivity, and so we, we just leave it all behind. I mean, bread for the rest of us, there may be some exceptions, but for, for most, is just the appetizer that comes out before the real food arrives at the restaurant we eat at, right? It's not essential. We don't see it as essential in our diet, in our survival. But the bread uh, of Jesus' day was essential for daily sustenance. This is what people depended on. Much of their diet consisted of bread. And so, therefore, it can represent and does represent our physical needs in this life. But as we read this morning in verse 8, and we saw previously, if God already knows what we need before we ask Why should our prayer time, as precious as it may be, be occupied by praying for something so trivial as what we're going to eat? Well, again, I don't think we can grasp this as Westerners who live in 2023. Most of us uh, today live in abundance, at least everyone probably in this room. You see, most people throughout history were the minority. Most people throughout history and most people even outside the West today live more day-to-day for their food, for their sustenance. They have a different view of what give us this day our daily bread means. We shop at grocery stores that are just full of choices and abundance to the point that we get mad when a supply is missing. Do you remember the toilet paper shortage? Yeah, you remember the outright? Okay, yeah. But, I mean, even if our balsamic vinaigrette, the one that we always buy, it's always here. If it's not there this week, where is my balsamic vinaigrette? I mean, it, it, we, we, get, we get angry when our supplies. I mean, we go to these membership warehouses where if they're out on the floor, it's up in the ceiling. You know, they can bring forklifts. It's just abundant, abundant what we have before us. And so we can keep our pantries and our refrigerators and our freezers so stocked at home that with the exception of parents of teenagers and young adults, we have abundant choices of food in our house at all times. The parents of teenagers and young adults got my joke there that you regularly hear, there's nothing to eat in this house. But there is. We all have it. Even those of us who may keep a slim stock, we still have much more than what most of the world has known throughout history, and indeed what many in the world today don't even know. We recognize as Christians that we're dependent upon God. We know he's our provider. We confess this regularly. Yet, we have been so numbed by our affluence that we don't realize what we have, or we may think it's our accomplishments, or even worse, that it's owed to us. But the prayer, give us today our daily bread, is a reminder of our dependence upon God to meet our needs. And because we need help with this, especially today, Jesus graciously includes this in the Lord's Prayer to teach us to remember to pray, God, give me what I need today, even though our Heavenly Father already knows that we need it. John Calvin wrote, Believers do not pray with the view of informing God about things unknown to him or of exciting him to his duty or of urging him as though he were reluctant. On the contrary, they pray in order that they may arouse themselves to seek him. 
that they may exercise their faith in meditating on his promises, that they may relieve themselves from their anxieties by pouring them into his bosom, in a word that they may declare that from him alone they hope and expect, both for themselves and for others, all good things. God himself, on the other hand, has purposed freely and without being asked to bestow blessings upon us, but he promises that he will grant them to our prayers. We must therefore maintain both of these truths, that he freely anticipates our wishes, and yet that we obtain by prayer what we ask. You see, he lovingly taught us to pray for what we need each day, knowing already what we need before we ask, that we might continually remember that our lives are in his hands. If the lights went out tomorrow, most of us would be helpless. Even the ones who know how to hunt and fish and put something in the ground and grow it up, we all would remain helpless. We might be able to survive a little longer if we knew how to do those things than the next person, but most of us, when the generator fuel was gone and the, the, what was left in the pantry was gone, we wouldn't know what to do. And we recognize now that even those who know how to survive, uh, even that, we are dependent upon God. One little storm that's tracking north right now, could always change course and come through and wipe out anything that we thought we could do on the other hand. And all you have to do is read a history book to realize that we are not omnipotent. We are frail. We are but dust and we will return to dust. And so the reason that we pray, God, please give me what I need today, is because we truly are dependent upon him. Now, not only does this prayer focus our dependence upon him, but it also focuses on the daily uh, aspect. And uh, for me, this brings to mind the whole experience of manna in the wilderness of when God taught his people after delivering them out of Egypt that he would provide for them by providing this bread-like food called manna, which means literally, what is it? They didn't even have a name for it. Uh, But they were to gather it each day. And as you remember, it would spoil after one day. So they were, they were required to gather each day, the exception being on Fridays. They gathered twice as much, so they didn't have to gather on the Sabbath. And on that occasion, every, every Sabbath day, it wouldn't spoil so that they would have enough. It wasn't about God showing his, his, you know, some, some kind of trick for his people. It was about showing them who he is as their provider. It was about teaching them to look to him to provide for them. Well, much like our lack of understanding about the significance of bread throughout most of history and around the world, I think we also struggle with understanding what it means to live day by day. We've all probably lived at some point in our lives paycheck to paycheck, but there's a big difference from living paycheck to paycheck and living day to day. Few of us have ever had to do that. Yet our tendency is not to pray that God would give us what we need today Our prayers, and I'll confess my prayers, give me an abundance. I want to know that I've got enough for tomorrow and next month and next year for the future and retirement. I would just, Lord, it would just really make me feel a lot better. All my anxieties would be gone if I just had enough that I didn't have to worry at all. It's wise to plan for the future, but we don't need to deceive ourselves to think that the future is in our hands. One event could undo all of our plans and savings. I've told the story before of when we moved to Cyprus and found out that they had an economic crash there just a few years before. And the government, in order to save the economy, took 40 or 40% of everybody's money who had over a certain amount in the bank. I think it was 100,000 euros. 
And so we met and encountered a number of people who were right on the cusp of retirement whose entire lives were uprooted because everything was gone. They, they no longer had enough. In fact, our favorite souvlaki restaurant, that was, it, souvlaki was a, a food that we got regularly there. The owner had opened this restaurant. And he, and, and, and I mean, I remember one time telling me we broke, he didn't know very much English. I didn't know very much Greek. But he, through tears, uh, just expressed the grief as he saw his wife working in the hot kitchen to serve this food because that was their only choice. You see, we don't think that could ever happen, that there's not an event because we have our security in our bank accounts, because our retirements are are fluffed up enough and and, and nothing could ever happen. But there are a a whole array of scenarios that could take it all away. I'm not trying to stir up fear in your hearts. I'm not trying to make you worry about tomorrow in any sense, but rather to see who actually holds tomorrow. Where is our hope actually found? There is only one who holds the future in his hands, and it is to him or in him that we must put our trust. So may we not look to our own wealth or our hope or prayers for wealth. As we read in Proverbs 30, two things I ask of you, deny deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. To give us what we need for the day is a loving kindness of our God that keeps us close in dependence upon Him. You may be in a situation where you are wondering, Maybe you're in a mess financially. Maybe you have incredible needs and you're wondering, will God ever deliver you out of this? Maybe you are in debt or fear, have a fear of living in debt or being in debt or wondering if you have enough for the years to come. Praying that God would meet our daily needs doesn't discount our planning, our works. Don't, don't, don't mishear me on this. We are to be diligent. We are to be good stewards. We are to discipline our spending uh, to save for the future, all of that. But our lives are ultimately in his hands, and we must have this framework. I, I honestly think that the one, uh, if we look at the two that are, that are mentioned here in, in, in Proverbs 30, I think the one who has the greater spiritual struggle is the wealthy one. You see, the one who is lost, who's up to their eyeballs in debt, who doesn't know about tomorrow, how they're going to make ends meet, they're aware of their dependence upon God. It's those who have enough, have more than enough, that face the greater battle, in my opinion. For they must battle their own pride and arrogance, their judgmentalism toward those who are struggling, and any notion that, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? So may we be on guard here. Be careful what you wish for and pray for. And instead, may we all in humility and trust ask God, give us this day our daily bread. Our needs in this life, though, are not just physical. They're also spiritual. Uh, We have a a sin problem we're all well aware of. And so the prayer continues that we pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And so in this is this conditional statement that that, uh, he extrapolates further in verses 14 and 15. We'll look at all of this together now. 
Now, depending on how you first heard or learned, memorized the Lord's Prayer, if you did so as a kid, you might have learned it with the word debts and debtors or trespasses and and those who trespass against us or just the word sins. All of those words represent the problem here. It's we're asking for forgiveness for our sins, but debt is the actual word that's used here in the Greek. And it's the idea that there is a deficit in our account. It is a deficit of righteousness, righteousness without which no man shall see God. And so we understand that because of our sins, we have a debt that we are unable to repay. That's the concept that is being represented here. The word trespasses is has, again, you may have learned it that way. It's, that's the word that's used in verses 14 and 15. It's another biblical concept of sin. So there's multiple concepts of how we understand sin. There's debt, there's trespasses. Trespassing is simply what we think of when you see the sign, no trespassing. What is trespassing? It's when you cross the border, right? You have crossed the border into evil. You have broken the law. You've transgressed or trespassed upon the law of God. We have become criminal in our sin. And in doing these, our sins, we reveal our enmity with God, that we do not love him, but oppose him as his enemies. And so that's a third way of understanding sin. The bottom line, though, here is that we have a sin problem and we need forgiveness for our sins, something that Jesus instructs us here to do regularly, to include this in our prayers. Do we regularly pray, forgive us of our sins? Well, the question that comes up is why? Why do we need to do this? If, if Christ has forgiven us of our sins, those of us who are trusting by faith in Christ Jesus, if he has forgiven us of our sins at the cross, why do we need to continue asking for forgiveness? And the answer is simply because we continue to sin. That's why we need to continue to ask. Now, there, there's nothing that changes our legal status Right? Our legal status is secure in terms of Christ's righteousness being credited to our account through his redemptive work on the cross. Our sins have been paid for. They are forgiven. It is the relationship component. Just like in a marriage, if the husband said, I love you on the wedding day and then never said it again, there might be a problem. Or the wife, whichever one, I won't pick on anyone. Right? You know, there's a relational component. You want to hear I love you more than just one time. In our own relationships, you can say, I'm sorry, but sometimes you need to say it more than once because sometimes you do it again and again. In our relationship with God, we need to confess our sins. And 1 John tells us, 1-9 tells us that when we do confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's not just about that God is up there waiting for us to confess. It's about the cleansing of, Uh, that we receive the renewal, the refreshment that our sins have been forgiven. Very basically, this is a reminder of the gospel that's built into this prayer, that our sins have been forgiven. That's the good news of the gospel. God saves sinners, right? That our sins have been forgiven. What we could never do for ourselves, he has done for us in Christ Jesus. And so we are refreshed then by that truth of the forgiveness that Christ has granted to us in redemption. The statement that follows the request is the one that we have a harder time with, as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is what Jesus expands upon in verses 14 and 15, where he says, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It is a conditional statement that our forgiveness is connected to God's forgiveness. And this 
weighs upon us very heavily. Now, this does not redefine the gospel. So what is Jesus saying? We understand the gospel. Scripture clearly teaches the gospel is a free gift of God's grace. It is not dependent upon any contribution that we make, including whether we have forgiven someone or not. Jesus is still is just simply expressing the idea that if our sins have been forgiven, we will forgive. That we will, and let me just say this, when we have that feeling of, oh no, I will never forgive them for what they did to me. That we will run to the cross. That we will not accept it as okay to say that, to feel like that, to act like that. Even though we might feel like that in the moment. Forgiveness doesn't always come easily. It doesn't always feel complete. It's a process sometimes. Some of you know this. A process that can go on and on and on. But for those who have been forgiven much, we are compelled to forgive As the parable of the unforgiving servant teaches in Matthew 18, we don't have time to go there, but Jesus makes it very clear there that we must forgive because we have been forgiven. Yet there are situations, and some of you have experienced them, where it is incredibly difficult to forgive from the heart, to use the words of Jesus there in Matthew 18. And if you are in such a situation and have struggled or are struggling now, maybe for years, I don't want you to hear this and doubt Christ's forgiveness for you. If you have suffered incredible harm at the hands of another, maybe something that changed your life or even ruined your life, I don't want it to seem like such things are trivial. Yet we cannot change the words of Jesus here when he says we must forgive. And so if you're not there yet, if you're struggling, even if you thought to yourself, I can't do this, or if you thought to yourself, I I thought I had forgiven them, but it keeps coming back up, maybe because of just things that spark it, the memory, or maybe they continue to do things. Often in marriages this happens, and so the old stuff just keeps getting drugged back up again and again and again. There is only one place to go with all this, and that is to Christ. And specifically to the cross where our sins have been dealt with. That's the only answer to the inability to forgive. That you can go to Jesus and say, I don't know how to forgive. Frankly, I don't want to forgive. But I hear you telling me that I must. And so I'm coming to you for help. Help me do this. Help me forgive. And it may not be instantaneous. You may have to pray a similar prayer again and again and again. But this is where we must go with these struggles. We must not say, no, I will never forgive. We must not say that. Instead, let's go to the cross time and time again and see how greatly we have been forgiven so that we may be able to forgive others. Now, forgiving others does not mean that we forget, even though that probably makes a few of you go, huh? Wait, I thought we were supposed to forgive and forget. Who in here is able to make themselves forget anything? It's impossible. How can we? I mean, sometimes we wish we could forget, and we can't forget. What forgetting sins is about is choosing not to remember, choosing not to dwell on, choosing not to bring it up again and again. In essence, when someone has sinned against us, there is a debt, and the debt is owed to us. And what forgiveness is, is us, take, uh, we, we're the ones who, who have the debt against us, but we're choosing to write the check 
to cover what the other person did. We're paying, in a sense, in our hearts for what the other person has done. That's what forgiveness really looks like. That's why the, the image of debts is so helpful for us to understand. If someone borrowed money from you and didn't repay it, and you chose to, in a sense, pay yourself back from your own funds, I mean, how like, inconceivable is that? And yet that is what forgiveness looks like. Our funds cover the loss, and then we close the book. We choose not to dwell on it. We choose not to bring it up again and again and again. None of us want our sins brought up again and again and again, so we do not need to treat others the way that we do not want to be treated. So don't do it. Even though the temptation is there, and you think it's a real zinger when that person does the same thing again and again, and you can get them because they did it before, and you're going to show them, show them the books. Maybe show them that you forgave them. Don't do it. Don't do it. Close the books. This is what Christ has done for us. When God says that he remembers our sins no more, it doesn't mean that he actually forgets. How can the omniscient God actually forget? It means that he chooses not to remember our sins anymore. He chooses not to bring them up again and again. He closes the book on our sins in forgiveness and does not bring them against us again. That's what forgiveness looks like. And this is why we must forgive as we have been forgiven. Now, the final petition is one of protection. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In Ephesians 6, we see quite clearly the spiritual battle that we are in in this life. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. None of us is exempt from this spiritual battle. Most of us are ready to admit that. We understand it. We see it. We have an adversary who seeks to devour. We understand this is Satan, and he is an enemy. Uh, some of the translations of the Lord's Prayer is deliver us from the evil one. And there's arguments over whether that's appropriate or not. The, the language is actually deliver us from the evil. And because there's that article there, many people would argue that it's Satan. He certainly is behind it. That's certainly a part of the prayer. He is our adversary. But we have two other adversaries as well. We all know this. Let me read James 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. What is enemy number two? Not that I'm putting them in any order of priority. I actually think enemy number two is enemy number one. It's our own hearts. It's our self. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's deceptive. It leads us astray. We don't even know that we don't know, right? James, later on in chapter 3, says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And so there's Satan, there's our own hearts, our own flesh, and then there's the world. Three enemies that we all face, that we all battle against, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so the request here is in a prayer that God would protect us or deliver us from temptation and from evil. And sometimes the answer is he delivers us from temptation. And would we ever even know it? Maybe not. There have been times where God has answered this prayer for us and we didn't even know it. 
He protected us from ever being tempted. What a wonderful, gracious thing that we can thank God for. Thank you for all the times that you removed me or the temptation from me so that I never was even tempted. Thank you, Lord. I guarantee you it's happened to every believer in this room. Multiple times, we don't even know it. Thank God for that. But it doesn't always mean that he's going to remove the temptation from us or us from the temptation. But rather, in the midst of testing our faith, being strengthened, that we might grow in that faith and in Christ-likeness. James said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Because God has forgiven us in Jesus Christ, we now look to the future to pray that our sins, uh, not only that our sins would be forgiven, that's the past, we look to the future to pray that we be protected from the temptation, that we would not continue to sin, that we wouldn't have to continue. We know we're going to, but we, we, we pray that we would not uh, be put in situations, that we would be protected in situations. And when the Lord does allow us, that he would give us the strength then to stand so that we may not continue to sin. Now, let me just add briefly that even if you're looking in the ESV this morning or in other translations, you don't see what many of us learned and memorized as the Lord's Prayer, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That was in the authorized version, the King James Standard Version, but it's not in most Greek manuscripts. The oldest, best manuscripts that we have, it's not there, and that's why it's been omitted from most of our translations. However, I don't think that it is inappropriate for us to pray that. I think it is very appropriate in part uh, because it is the answer to the beginning of the prayer, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's an appropriate response or praise or what we would call doxology to what we have already prayed. We also see the example of this in Scripture. In 1 Chronicles 29, when David led the assembly in worship, it says, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. And so a doxology simply proclaims the greatness of of our God. And so we're proclaiming the greatness of our God in doxology, but we're also proclaiming the greatness of our God in our petitions. If we weren't, why would we ever petition him? If he wasn't able to respond, if he wasn't powerful enough to respond, if he wasn't listening in the first place, why would we even waste our time petitioning him? The petitions themselves declare his glory that he calls us to come to him, to bring our requests even boldly to his throne and pray that he would meet all of our needs. And now in our worship service together, he declares to us in his table, his glory, his kingdom, and his power forever. Because of Christ's death for us, our sinful ways have been resolved, redeemed, purchased, bought back, atoned for, Because he was crushed for us. He bled and died to take away our sins that we might through faith be his children forever. And so let us come then to the table prayerfully this morning. As we honor God, as we submit to his reign, as we obey his will for us, recognizing our dependency upon him, 
confessing our sins and forgiving others who have sinned against us and looking to him for protection in the days ahead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray you would give us today what we need, our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us, who are indebted to us, Lord. Lead us not in temptation, deliver us from evil. Protect us, Lord. Give us this mind, even now as we approach your table, that we might continue to be fed by your word and now by your sacrament. Lord, may our prayer lives be changed as a result of seeing how you have taught us how to pray, even those of us who have known this for years and years. May we see your greatness and your glory, not only in who you are and what you've done for us in Christ Jesus, but in prayer itself that you bid us to come to you. Lord, we thank you for this privilege that we have. And may we be diligent to steward it well. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.